Welcome to another edition of the TDN Writers Room. I'm Bill Finley, back from my trip to Seattle. See my beloved Red Sox stink up the joint, but it's good to be home. And I'm a correspondent of the Thoroughbred Daily News and also the co-host of the Down the Stretch radio show on Sirius XM Radio. Good to have you back. There are better places to spend a bad baseball game, or worse places than Seattle. I love Seattle. I'm Randy Moss with NBC Sports. Zoe Kavman here with First Racing with Doodle. Glad to have you both back here. And uh, yeah, I woke Doodle up, so he's probably going to go <laughs> back to bed. I'm entering my fifth week in Saratoga, and it, it's tough. I don't know if you've ever stayed here for the whole meet, but it's not for the faint-hearted, especially if you're getting up sub 5 a.m. So uh, bear with me. <laughs> Zoe, you're getting paid to be in Saratoga. I no know. one feels sorry for you, okay? <laughs> All right. So anyways, um, let's start the show off with the big story of the week and one we sure didn't want to be a big story. And it's Maple Leaf Mel, of course, in the test stakes. Everybody knows what happened. Of course, it was just inches from winning the test stakes, got to the wire, trained by Melanie Giddens and suffered a fatal breakdown. And you know what, guys? I'm looking for things to say and I've run out of things to say and I'm tired of not having anything new to say. We can keep, you know, stating the obvious. It's horrible. It's a tragedy. The sport's trying to do better. But I'm just exhausted by the whole thing. And I want to come on and say, these are the answers. This is what we have to do. And this is how we're going to change the situation. But do we have the answers? Are we going to change the situation? Horses are always going to break down, even though things are getting better. And then the question becomes what we talk about every single time one of these things happens. How close is the public getting to saying, you know what, this is not OK. And that horse racing, what we call the social license, is really in jeopardy. It, it, this was, you know, we've all seen this happen, unfortunately, many a time. I was there for the gopher wand. I was there when Ruffian broke down. Um, this one, so far as the punch to the gut you know, we hate it when any horse breaks down. A horse breaks down in the fourth race, a $3,000 claimer. That's awful. But when you consider everything that was happening here, audience at Saratoga, charismatic young trainer, an undefeated horse owned by a celebrity in Bill Parcells, this was as bad as it gets, guys. Yeah, it was the it was the worst possible combination. You know, um, it, remind, it reminded me of. Uh, you know, Cody's Wish is the most popular resource in America because of everything that comes with Cody's Wish, Cody Dorman. And we've talked about this on NBC. Every time Cody's Wish runs and we're covering it on NBC, we hold our breaths from beginning to end. Please don't let anything happen to this horse. And here you have, you know, Maple Leaf Mel. Fox had just run this feature on Mel Giddings, uh, an emotional feature talking about her you know, being a cancer survivor and her uh, relationship with the horse, her connection with the horse. I mean, for crying out loud, they show her laying down in the stall with Maple Leaf Mel. The Maple Leaf Mel puts her head on Giddings' chest. And everybody who was watching, and it was on the main Fox network. It wasn't buried on Fox Sports 2 or anything like that. So the audience would have been bigger. And I guarantee you there were people bawling all over the country after that race was over because the feature made you care, you know, not just about Mel Giddings and you know, all that, but about the horse, the sweet, you know, the sweet horse in the stall. Uh, and as far as not having any answers, you're not alone. Nobody has any answers, right? I mean, you, you could switch every dirt racetrack in America to synthetic and you could cut the breakdown rate uh, theoretically in half, uh, but it's not going to, pacify the animal rights people who want to abolish horse racing. And as soon as there is another high profile breakdown on synthetic, and there eventually would be, then the calls would resume all over again to, to, to do away with horse racing. I don't know what the, there's, there is no answer. It's unfortunate, but uh, it, it's something that we're all too accustomed to. 
And before a record crowd, it was Whitney Day. They had over 43,000 people there. I was there in person, and it was just like somebody stuck a pin in the balloon and just popped it. The silence was palpable. Um, probably one of the worst things that I've ever seen. Really feel for Melanie Giddings. This was her baby. And it just goes to show anybody that thinks we don't care about the horses is just insane. There were already protesters outside of the gates at Saratoga before the races even really? started. So I don't even know what happened afterwards. I know a lot of people got up and left. Um, it, it was just horrible to see. I will say one thing. Godolphin, Michael Banahan, Brendan Walsh displayed the kind of class that I don't think I've ever seen before at a racetrack by huddling together and opting not to go into the winner's circle, not to even take a picture. They just untacked Pretty Mischievous, who beat the 17-1 to 1 shot, clearly unhinged by a head for the win. They felt like they didn't win it outright. And uh, they went home. It just gave everybody a, a horrible, sickening feeling in their stomach. Brendan Walsh and his team, actually, the very next day, we've seen it all over Twitter, went and hunted down the garland and the flowers and took it to Melanie Giddings. And it's not like they're best friends. Um, you know, they they work together. They see each other. Their barns are fairly close. But him and his assistant, Charlie, uh, carried over the flowers just because it was the right thing to do. So the fact that you know, so many times the racetrack and the backside are all fighting amongst each other. Every single person came together in that one moment and just feels terrible. It was a horrible outcome. The only thing that may have saved the day, and it didn't, would be if Cody's Wish had won the Whitney later on, and that didn't happen either. So I, I don't know what the answer is. I can tell you one thing, that filly was just about as sound as you will ever see a horse going into a race. I saw her pretty much every day. Sean Bridgemahan got on her, Melanie rode the pony. So you, you hate to say it's one of those things. I, I don't know what the answers are unless you scan yeah. every single horse, at every single race, every single day, and that's going to be impossible. I mean, what a class <laughs> move by Brendan Walsh because it was yeah. the most hollow victory imaginable. Oh. Yeah. Clearly, she was you know wasn't going to win the race. She was the second best horse, so you can imagine how you know how they felt about it. Uh, it showed a lot of class. And you mentioned the protesters outside Saratoga when we did the Haskell on NBC. These people are getting more and more aggressive. They oh, yeah. had they had a big video board set up outside the main entrance to Monmouth Park with a reel of horses breaking down over and over and over. Everybody that walked in through the main entrance. At main entrance at Monmouth, uh, had to walk past this huge video screen showing the most horrific breakdowns in horse racing, right? I mean, this is not going away. So I want to take it back to you because Randy and I both address this. Um, and I think Randy, I, I'm, I think I'm capturing Randy's thoughts as well, uh, of just a tremendous amount of frustration, I feel, because again, you know, anything in life, whether it's horse racing, your own life, whatever, if, if there's something going wrong, you want to fix it. And, you know, OK, like Randy said, maybe go to synthetic, do this. You know, people are trying to do the right things. California has reduced the numbers, but this is an unfixable problem. And, you know, that that scares me to death about the future of this sport, because those people outside Monmouth, those people outside Saratoga more and more people are starting to listen to them. I'm glad I'm not 20 years old. Right. Uh, honestly, it's it's terrifying. I mean, we saw the way Greyhound racing has gone. This is not getting any better. And it's a, it's a hard point to try and argue with someone. How can you say that's okay? You can't. There is no argument that's a good argument when you see what happened on Saturday. So I, I don't know. A friend of mine pointed out, and he knows nothing about horses, um, there was a picture of a, a win photo. And he's like, why is that horse only on one leg? Because when horses run, when they're galloping at any one time, one foot is on the ground. So that's a thousand pounds. He's like, that horse has just got one leg on the ground. How does that happen? I'm like, that's what happens. There's just so much pressure. And with Maple Leaf Mel, she runs fast early. She ran fast late. And fast horses sometimes pay the price. It's just, 
it's a tragedy. Yeah, I want to concur with something you said. I mean, our answer to the public is we're trying, we're doing better. Things are better. And I don't think the public, I don't think that's an acceptable explanation. I think most people in the public say that's not good enough. Yeah. No, I mean, what I try to tell people, and it, it's not good enough either, but I say, look, if you put these horses in the wild and you put them in a field and you say, okay, we're not going to race them anymore, you're going to have injuries in a paddock. You're going to have horses step in a hole. They run because they love to run. You're going to have them take bad steps. And, and you know, there are going to be some misfortunes that happen in situations like that. There's no way to, horses are so fragile. There's no way to completely avoid accidents like that. But again, that's, that's a hollow explanation. That's a hollow excuse as well. Want to remind you that the TDN Writers Room is brought to you by Keeneland. The Keeneland September sale has already produced, listen to this, 113 graded stakes winners in 2023 and had another TDN rising star this weekend in Julia's Dream. Now, she sold last year at the Keeneland September sale for 15000 but went on to air comfortably at Del Mar on Sunday. Keeneland is home of the world's yearling sale. The energy, magic, and momentum of the September's yearling sale returns September the 11th through the 23rd. Learn more at theworldsyearlingsale.com. We'll be right back after this message from Keeneland. If this place could talk, it would roar. It would say, this is racing. This beating heart in the heart of horse country. Steady and strong beneath the roar. Reminding us why for the love of the horse for generations to come. The TDN Writers Room is brought to you by Stone Street. At the first marquee yearling sale of the 2023 season, it was a Stone Street bred who led the way on opening night at Fazig Tipton, Saratoga. It was Hip 77, a quality road colt from the grade one winning family of Dortmund. That one sold for $1.1 million to Ammo Racing. There are 59 Stone Street breads coming up at the Keelan September yearling sale from September 11th through the 23rd. Now, they've got top sires in their selection. Into Mischief, Tap It, Curlin, Uncle Mo, Medaglia Doro, Justify, Constitution, Ghost Zapper, More Than Ready, Town, and many, many more. The guiding focus of Stone Street is to breed and develop quality thoroughbreds with strength, stamina, and class. Stone Street, born to run, raised to win. In this week's Saratoga Minute, our Katie Petruniak stopped by Barn 12 at Saratoga to visit with trainer John Ortiz and his new star, the Adirondack winner, Brightwork. Just through my binoculars, I just watched her coming towards me, and I was just, just I took it all in. You know, everybody's yelling, screaming, and jumping around me, and I was just waited till she crossed the wire. Once she crossed the wire, I put my binoculars down, and I was just proud. Checked up the bucket list, you know. <laughs> no doubt about it. Performance from Brightwork, who wins it by four widening lengths. I think it hasn't hit yet. I'm, I'm very proud that we got a win here. I feel like I belong. You know, it's just, it didn't, I'm not, I'm not a rookie trainer anymore, you know, I still, you know, I'm sure we all got, every day we got something to learn on the racetrack, but I feel like, you know, I know, we know what we're doing, uh, we're here to compete, and here we are, so she was picked out at the sale by Jared Hughes, which has been doing a fantastic job, and this filly's showing some talent early, she's showing some, some pretty good mindset, and, and I said, I think she's going to be ready before we, we think she will be. Uh, and she did. This Saratoga Minute was brought to you by Naira Bets. Sign up now for Naira Bets and get your matching deposit of up to $200. Bet any track, anywhere, anytime. Make a deposit within 30 days of signing up for your account. Bet twice that amount of your initial deposit, and you'll get a wagering credit from Naira Bets matching that first deposit. Here's how you sign up. Promo code SPA200. That's the way to get your deposit match today. Bright work, the winner of the Adirondack Stakes, as we just heard from trainer John Ortiz and Katie Petrunik. 
but was she the best two-year-old filly that ran on the day? Maybe not. Guys, I have been waiting for a maiden at Saratoga, be it a colt or a filly, to blow me away. There's been some nice performances, uh, some horses that won by, you know, comfortable margins, got decent buyer figures. But to me, the best two-year-old we have seen at the meet came earlier on the Sunday card before Brightwork. And that is a horse by the name of Ways and Means, a two-year-old filly, a homebred from Clarevitz Stables, trained by Chad Brown. She wins by 12 and three-quarter lengths with Flavian Pratt aboard, gets a 90 buyer figure. Uh, by comparison, Brightwork got an 89. I assume she'll go back in the spinaway. And uh, Chad Brown's got a future star, no doubt about it. This one stays healthy. Um, she looks like the real deal. Yeah, Zoe, you were there. You saw her up close and personal. What do you think? I've seen a lot of her in the morning. She's sure. a freak. She is an absolute freak. In fact, um, speaking to Chad Brown yesterday and he was joking, he's like, he was at the sale and he's like, I don't know why we're going to the sale. We're breeding them. What do you <laughs> think of her? I'm like, I've liked her from day one. The first time I saw her work at Santa Anita, at um, Saratoga. Uh, Flavian has been working her in the morning and he was telling me he worked her too fast one day and, you know, Chad might've gone off on Flavian a little bit. He said, we didn't speak for a couple of days after that, but we're all good now. His instructions to Flavian were do not let her run until you get to the wire. That's how confident they were in her, in her ability. And she did it the right way. It's not like she ran off and hid and just was an absolute speedball. I love the fact that she rated, because she's pretty keen in the morning, but she rated, she took a bit of dirt. She looked like a seasoned professional, a daughter of practical joke, she was broken and prepped. A big shout out to my friends, uh, Jackie and Nick Demarek at their place. They actually also did the same thing with Asaya. Practical joke. So kudos to them. She did it the right way. And she is an absolute freak. I mean, she stopped the clock in 110.28 and one by 12 and a half lengths in an absolute canter. Yeah, it's scary that Kirk Klarman is now starting to breed these top class right. race horses as well as buying them at sale. You know, this one began with a with a very modest filly that he bought by the name of Strong Incentive, who was running back in 2015. She won a, a Canadian bred stakes on synthetic at Woodbine. So she was a stakes winner. Her first foal couldn't run at all. Uh, he sold that one and then he decided to step up his game a little bit and he and he bred this mayor strong incentive to into mischief and decided to keep that one it was highly motivated you might remember highly motivated for running second in the bluegrass uh a really good second to essential quality and finishing five links ahead of rombauer uh, who would come back out of that of course to win the preakness stakes highly motivated ran of the kentucky derby you know he was a really good horse and now they've got another one out of the same mare by the name of surge capacity who is two for two. Uh, Clarman held on to this one as well in the Chad Brown barn, and she won the Lake George in her most recent start at Saratoga. So how about that? Chad's got a barn full now, or a few at least, of Seth Clarman homebreds that can really run. Scary and thought. rich, rich get richer, as so often happens <laughs> at Saratoga. All right, so um, the Whitney, obviously, from a purse standpoint and prestige standpoint, the biggest race of the day at Saratoga. We already talked about the good news of the Cody's Wish story uh, and how that's been something that has put a smile on everybody's face throughout uh, the campaign of that horse. Having won six straight going into the Whitney, but the difference this time, of course, is the stretch out in distance. Horses never won beyond a mile. Uh, two starts, one at a mile and a 16th, finished second in a stake at Tampa. And actually way back uh, in 2021 at Saratoga in a mile and eighth maiden race, didn't win that uh, either. The public made him the heavy favorite. And Randy and Zoe, I didn't think the distance was going to make any difference whatsoever. Uh, as Randy, you pointed out before, he's by curling out of a tappet mayor. Uh, you can't get better stamina breeding than that. I thought he might even be better at a mile and eighth round two turns than he was. But, you know, Bill Mott might have known something because he was hesitant to do this. He kept keeping the horse in shorter races. And as it turned out at the end of the day, he he was not able to get the job done. Didn't run a particularly bad race, but he was a distant third. Uh, and did he run his race? I don't know, but I don't think we're going to get a chance to find out if it was a distance. I don't, Mott has said now that the goal goes back to being the Breeders' Cup dirt mile. 
But the winner, White Aberio, my goodness. I mean, part of the reason why Cody's uh, wish didn't perform up to expectations because this horse ran a crazy good race. Trained by Richard Dutro Jr., uh, a horse that has been kind of inconsistent throughout his career, won the Florida Derby. And to me, he never really ran back to that race. He's had some good races after that. Trained by Safi Joseph, and he just, boy, did he put it all together. I mean, he ran a sensational race. Cody's Zandon was second, Cody's Wish back in third. So um, good news from the White Aberio camp. Sorry to see, uh, but I'm very sorry to see Cody's Wish lose. That that winning streak was a lot of fun, but he's got a Hall of Fame trainer and I'm sure Bill Mott will get him right back in a winning uh, way very soon. Yeah, I mean, White Aberio's career is going, is going just like this. And this is four times in his last five starts that he has run a career high, a new career high buyer speed figure. The first two with Safi and now and now Rick Dutrow uh, in the Met Mile and now this performance. Now, I don't think Cody's Wish even came close to running his race. And like you said, I mean, I was a believer that the distance wouldn't be a problem. Uh, not only Curlin, you pointed out the dam by Tappet. Two of her best races were at a mile and an eighth. So why would a mile and an eighth be a problem for Cody's Wish? Well, these races aren't always run on paper. Uh, and in hindsight, a lot of times we've seen sprinters with a strong come from behind style, not really carry that kind of performance at to longer two turn distances. And it looks like now that Cody's wish is going to be one of these kinds of horses. As far as White Barrio going forward, next start, according to Dutro, Breeders' Cup Classic. Uh, he runs his best races, Dutro says, with with uh, with big gaps in between them. And now that Cody's wish ran poorly around two turns, uh, defunded ran poorly or at least by his standards, West Willpower's retired. Uh, in this weekly poll for the Breeders' Cup Classic, hell, I put White Abario number one. I mean, after that performance in the Whitney, why not? Who else would I put number one? <laughs> um, well, I'm going to start with Cody's wish. I'm doing this right now, and that is simply drawing a line through his race. I think even if he's going one turn, he's getting beat. He just didn't show up. I mean, Junior Alvarado said he had no horse under him at any time. He took a bit of a stutter step, a, a tiny little stumble at the start, and I think he had an off day. Now, I don't know for sure, but that's the Cody's wish I'm going with. There was there was no spark, no spark whatsoever with Cody's wish. As for White Abario, a couple of things happened. One, you have to feel a little bit for Safi Joseph because the only reason – he is not in his barn was because he was barred from Churchill Downs and lost his horse to Rick Dutrow at the time. Now, Rick did well with the horse and he hasn't got the horse back. But if Safi hadn't been barred for those few weeks because of the two deaths of his horses, he would still have White a Barrier. Maybe we would have had a different result. I don't know. Rick Dutro back in the winner's circle, first grade one in 10 years on his 64th birthday. Rick looks great. The babe's back to stay. <laughs> he's lost weight. He's trimmed up. It was good to see because no matter what you thought of Rick Dutro 10 years ago, he has served his time. And that is just deserved. So couldn't be happier for him. Was it perhaps the right look for the sport on a horrific, day at Saratoga. I don't really know. I was personally glad for Rick Dutrow. I do feel for Safi Joseph and Wider Barrio showed that he does belong in, a, you know, a crop of older horses that is dwindling. He is right at the top right now off of that race. Okay. One more thing to add to this. And, and Randy mentioned it. Now he needs three months off. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. This is just getting... I thought of you when he said that, Bill. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Okay, so maybe, you know, Rick Dutro is a very good trainer and, and he believes that gives him the best shot to win the Breeders' Cup Classic. Maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. But he, here's the thing. We now have the Jockey Club Gold Cup. He would be the favorite in the Jockey Club Gold Cup, $1 million, and they don't care. It's like these other, there are other races out there that matter. And this is... <laughs> You know, I'll be screaming about this for the next 20 years, and I've been screaming about it for 20 years before. But, I mean, come on. No, no Woodward, no Jockey Club Gold Cup, no Pacific Classic. You know, just going to put them in mothballs for three months? 
Really? Come on, babe. You, you can do better than that. Uh, you got the hottest horse in America right now. Run them. Pick up some more, uh, you know, another big grade one win. Make some more money for your owners and he'll be fine for the Breeders' Cup. The poor thing can run at least one more time within the next three months. Um, but, uh, you know, what am I going to, what am I, it's like, same thing. I got no answers for this one. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, the TD and Riders Room is brought to you by the Pennsylvania Horse Breeders Association. Here's a reminder. We've been talking a lot about the $1 million Pennsylvania Day at the races. Well, entries will be taken next Tuesday. That's August 15th in the Parks Racing Office for the first edition of this series. Two races, $100,000, one for two-year-olds, one for two-year-old fillies, Pennsylvania bred, Pennsylvania sired horses. Get your entries in this past week. Two outstanding performances by Pennsylvania breds, both on Saturday at Colonial Downs. First off, the Keswick Stakes won by Carmelina. Congratulations to the breeder Lilith Boucher. Follow that up with Going Up, who won the $150,000 Hickory Tree Stakes for owner-breeder Tammy and Robert Klimasuski. Coming up next, the Green Group Guest of the Week. But first, this message from the PHBA. The PA Horse Breeders Association presents the Pennsylvania Stallion Series. Six races for PA Sire, PA Bred two-year-olds at parks. Two $100,000 contests at five and a half furlongs. On August 21st, PA Day at the Races. September 23rd, PA Derby Day has two races at six and a half furlongs, both with a $150,000 purse. And in December, two races going long, each worth $200,000. For more, go to pabred.com. The fastest horse of the week, as always, here on the TD and Riders Room, brought to you by the Fast Sires at Windstar Farm, in particular this week's Fast Sire. In the news, Outwork, of course, the sire of Brightwork, who we've already talked about, is winning the Adirondack Stakes at Saratoga on Saturday. She's now a perfect three for three for trainer John Ortiz. Next start for Brightwork, it's penciled in as the Spinaway Stakes, ultimately pointing, of course, for the Breeders' Cup juvenile fillies that was outworks second graded stakes winner as a stallion last year leave no trace won the spinaway stakes and went on to be second in the breeders cup juvenile fillies now fastest horse of the week we know who that is it's white abario with his 110 buyer speed figure again those speed figures just keep getting higher and higher and higher for white abario much to bill sugar and breeders cup classic next up apparently for white abario the TD and Writers Room is brought to you by The Green Group, a tax accounting and advisory firm. I've read this a hundred times. Why do I have to keep looking at this? In the thoroughbred industry, designed to save you taxes. This is Lynn Green's favorite moment in the entire podcast. Here we go. Welcome in now, the Green Group Guest of the Week, Robert Mantano. And he is the man behind the one-man show, the producer, the writer, the actor of what I understand is a terrific production. It's called Small and it's an autobiographical story of Robert Montano's journey as he started out on the racetrack many years ago as a jockey. And it's going to appear in Manhattan August 12th at the 59 East 59th Street Theater and run through September 2nd. To whet your appetite about small, let's see this clip first. All I ever wanted was to be small. I was five foot seven at 108 pounds with saddle and silks and just basically eating Air. Every jockey wants to ride and wants to win the Kentucky Derby, the Triple Crown, and I was no different. With that want comes sacrifice, fearlessness, and hard work. Racing regulations say if you can't make the weight, you can't race. If I couldn't race, I couldn't live. I knew what I wanted early on. I had my direction. I was clear. The only thing that stood in my way was God. This is my story. Robert, we welcome you in as the Green Group Guest of the Week. And tell us your story. How did you go from a kid growing up in New York City who wanted to be a dancer and an actor, wound up being briefly a jockey? What happened there? Well, I uh, I actually grew up in, uh, I was born in, raised my first seven years in Bayside, Queens, and we moved to Hempstead, Long Island. And uh, I was delivering newspapers for the Long Island Press, and I smelled what I thought was, you know, heavy peat moss on Bob and Sue Duncan's 
you know, won. And they said, no, it was horse manure on their tire. So I was like, horses? You work with horses? <laughs> My mother made the mistake, a huge mistake of uh, taking me directly from church uh, to Belmont Park. Uh, and I just fell in love with the horses. She did not want me on the racetrack because she thought it was too dangerous. And when I had Bob and Sue Duncan right there as my customers, I begged them to take me to the track. And I would sneak out uh, of my window, jump off the rooftop, go to their home. They'd take me to uh, Belmont and during the summer break, you know, and uh, my parents would ask me, you know, where are you going? You can't just do that. So I told them and my father, you know, he had this saying, uh, don't just uh, wish and wonder, do something about it. So that credo stays with me uh, till this day. And that's what I did. I followed my dreams and he made it possible for me to work on the track and uh, for the summer, not thinking that it would really go anywhere, you know, but then, uh, you know, I was just so smitten by the horses, uh, how massive and strong uh, they are. And, uh, and because I was very much bullied when I was a kid, uh, I was very small for, for most kids my age at that time. And, uh, and I was tired of getting picked on. But when I saw these little men coming out into the paddock area, just getting the, the, the respect, you know, because I, I asked my mother, you know, and I have it in the play. I said, what just happened? Why did it get so quiet? And she said, that's called respect. The jockeys are coming. And I was just so in, in love with the whole pageantry of it all. And she was there to bet on her jockey friend, Robert Pineda, uh, who I thought was just, I mean, badass. He was, he reminded me of Bruce Lee and Bruce Lee was a huge hero of mine at that time. And he looked like Bruce Lee. So, uh, I, um, as I got on the racetrack, you know, um, I, I, I hunted him down. And eventually he took me under his wing because I was just such a pest. I wouldn't leave him alone. And uh, he took me uh, and, and said to my mother, look, this is what he wants to do. He doesn't seem to be stopping, you know. So, you know, it'll be good that I take him under my tutelage, you know, and protect him and keep him safe. So that's what happened. And uh, the rest was just history. I, I, I would not have given up any of my child days or anything in the world, you know, being on the racetrack was the best place for me to be because it, it taught me so many things, you know, and a discipline, a way to work and not being afraid to work hard. And I was able to transfer that on to the rest of my life and whatever I did, you know. So the racetrack was, was very instrumental and me writing small is my, my homage to the racetrack and what it had given me, you know, and I felt like, you know, uh, an interesting story, Cheetah Rivera, who is behind Small now, I've worked with her in a couple of shows, you know, we did Kiss of the Spider Woman together, Cheetah Plus Two, and, you know, I asked her if she would host um, a reading of mine at the Signature Theater here in New York. And uh, my friend Rodney Kumasaki said, you know, I believe in this project, I believe in you, here's $10,000 go do it. And he made it possible for me to do it there. So I had people coming in to see it, important people. And uh, when I asked Cheetah, you know, she said, I never knew that you were a jockey. You've never mentioned anything about that. Why hadn't you? And I said, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, I just, you were doing your show. So it's like, you know, let me pay attention to this, you know? Um, and she found it fascinating. And she said, after the reading, she said, I had no idea, no idea. I'm going to do everything in my power to help you get this produced. And she stepped up and here we are. Yeah. Well, Robert, is it Robert or Bobby? I like being called Bobby, you know, especially from my race trackers. You know, it's, you know, I feel mm -hmm. it's my family. Yeah. Well, I am a fellow race tracker as well. And I was I very fortunate enough to be at GMB Farm to witness small. And for those of you that have not seen it, it is absolutely terrific. And, and not only is it, it's funny, but it's, it's also heartfelt and tackles 
a lot that goes on in the backside and a lot to do with jockeys. You talk about flipping, the struggling with the weight. You struggled with your weight. You were tiny and then you were huge. You you asked God to make you small and then you wanted to be big. It, it's just, it tackles everything. My, my biggest question is, why did you feel the need to tackle these subjects, considering that you've gone on and done so much since your brief career as a jockey? You came full circle. Why did you feel it's necessary to, to dive in and, and tackle these subjects? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't originally my idea. Um, uh, the artistic director at uh, Actors Theatre Louisville, which is like one mile right down the road from Churchill Downs Racetrack, uh, I've done several plays there, and he said, "You know, uh, I've seen I've seen that you that you that you put in your bio uh, an homage to the racetrack that you were a jockey. You know, you should write something about it." I said, "No, no." And, uh, and he said, "Well, why not?" And I said, "I don't know. Maybe it's just not interesting. Who's going to want to hear about that?" And he said, "Well, can I ask you some questions?" And sure. So he said, "So how many races have you won?" I was like, "Why don't you just put a." A knife in my heart and just um, get get it over with. I said zero. How many <laughs> did you ride? I said seven. How long did you ride for? I said two and a half years. And, and he said, how many races can a jockey ride in a day? And I said, well, with a good agent, he could ride nine races, you know, a day. And he said, wait a minute. So you owed seven races in a span of two years, um, and a jockey could ride nine. What were you doing in between races? And I said, losing weight, praying to God to keep me small. And he said. That's your story. That's what you need to write. So he put that seed in my head and I didn't do anything about it. Uh, a director who I worked with years later uh, directed me in several plays and she asked to read Under the Wire, which was a screenplay that I had written, you know, coming from that uh, artistic director, uh, John Jury. And uh, she said, I love to read it, you know, and it, it had been optioned twice, uh, the film Under the Wire. And I had a clause in, in my contract saying that if you veer away from the story, then, you know, I get to take it back at no cost. And that's what happened because they were saying, Seabiscuit made this much money, Seabiscuit. I was like, well, then do, do Seabiscuit too. I said, I don't know what to tell you. That's not the story, you know. And I couldn't, you know, and they were throwing me, you know, big money. And I, you know, and I'm a struggling actor and I, I just like, I could use that money, but I, there's no way I could wake up my, every morning and, and look at myself in the mirror and say that I didn't sell out and I wasn't going to do that. So anyways, when I was approached by this director of plays, you know, Jackson Gay, she said, let me read under the wire. And I said, no. And she said, let me, <laughs> I gave it to her. And then she had a meeting with me and she said, I want to propose that you write this as a solo play. You let me direct it and then you do it. And I said, no. So, for two and a half years, she had been pushing me to write it. And I understood, you know, the thing that was stopping me, and it was fear. It was fear of me sharing my blemishes. And I thought to myself, most people will understand those blemishes. There are few of us big-time winners, like, you know, the Irad Ortiz's, Jose's, and Chad Brown's, you know, Todd Fletcher's, you know than most of us that are struggling to just make ends meet. So I decided to write it. And uh, I wrote the first three pages. I sent it to uh, Jackson and she said, this is what I'm talking about. Come up to Yale. I'm working with Green Day on a new musical, but I would love for you to come up for a couple of days, write more pages as much as you can. This is the direction. So, and then eventually, you know, uh, we were working, working, and then she, she, uh, she couldn't give me as much time as I needed. So I had taken on uh, a new director, Jesse D. Hill, who actually got me to those places in the story and was able to help me implement uh, the transition, you know, into me becoming a dancer. Because how I had it originally written as an ending was <clears throat> me eating ice cream and hearing and watching and hearing, you know, the horses are approaching the starting gate. They're at the post, you know, and it goes to blackout. And she said, I've done some research on you. You were a dancer. I mean, and you were just not a dancer. You've done a lot of Broadway musical. And I said, yeah. I said, I think I know where you're going with this. And, and she said, we should talk about this. And 
I said, I tried writing it. And then she found a way to help me implement it. So this way, from the beginning, in the middle, you know, three quarters in to the end, it just, it didn't come out of nowhere, you know, that I all of a sudden, I just wanted to be a dancer, you know. Uh, so. Can you give me um, an example? Can you just rattle off your mother? Because you play all these different different characters in the play. Can, can you give us a little clip of your mother? Because that was my favorite. Ah. <laughs> oh, my mother. Oh, my God. She says to me, no, I don't go like that. And I said, Mom, <laughs> you know, um, but my mother, you know, uh, I'll give you an example where uh, where she would say to me, you know, I said, I said, Mom, where are we going? Where are we going? She said, to get tiles. What? You know, and so in an instant, we were parked in, in front of this huge coliseum. You can get tiles here. I hope so. <laughs> she ganks me out of the car, then drags me to this building, which was Belmont Park, you know. And um, yeah, everyone seems, everyone loves my mother. As a matter of fact, when she came to the reading at the Signature Theater, she said, oh my God, people are asking me for my autograph. I, I, I can't do it fast enough. I need one of those stamps. You know? <laughs> Yeah, she's a character, but she's very uh, colorful uh, and just uh, uh, exciting. Yeah. And Mickey yeah. Prager. I and mean, Mick you have all these great voices and, and the redneck guy with the chew in his mouth. Like, oh. yeah. You have literally lived on the backside because some of these characters that you come up with are obviously real to life because it's a true story. But it's just terrific. Yeah, Mickey, you know, it's funny. I. I I recollected when I was writing this, you know, I mean, I would do it like late at night when the city was quiet and asleep. And I was able to put myself into those places and just remember and feel, you know. And Mickey, you know, it's like he has uh, that cadence of, yeah, Bobby boy, you, you, you want to be a, a rider? Do you like uh, horses, do you? You know, and very kind and gentle, you know. Um, so I, you know, remembering these guys and Jack Willis, you know, with his with his tobacco and his, you know, his chew, uh, very very uh, southern, you know, uh, they were colorful characters on the racetrack, and there's no way not to remember them, you know, um, even even by the, the very first horse that I saw, which was My Serenus, uh, Sue Duncan was working for E. B. Ryan at the time, and she brought me to that her barn, you know, and that's when I saw My Serenus, and she said. Oh, Bobby, I can't believe you remember the name of the horse. I mean, is that for real? And I said, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I went digging for her, my Serena's and uh, Google. And sure as hell, there it was. There's a clip. And I showed it to you soon. She said, I can't believe you remember. And I said, that's how much of an impression the racetrack had left me with and will always leave me with. I mean, the racetrack is my first love. And it'll always be my first love, you know. And, and so, sure. Bobby, I I have not seen the play yet, but I have purchased tickets. I will be in the audience uh, when the play comes to Manhattan. But um, so Zoe may know the answer to this, but I don't. But uh, apparently, as much as you love being a jockey, it also led you to some dark places. I assume having to deal with weight and um, in one of the bios of the story or write-ups of the story, uh, you talk about self-destructive addiction to stay small. Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll give you some uh, uh, small examples of that, uh, pardon the pun. But, uh, you know, uh, there were times when <clears throat> I, would, I would run the water uh, in, in the bathroom and then I would run the uh, uh the shower water as well and i would flush the toilet as i'm just you know gorging on on oreos because i had oreos hidden at the very bottom of the hamper and then i would flip them you know um i just needed the taste you know uh i, I missed it i missed eating um i would take you know like laxatives uh amphetamines uh, later on to harsher drugs, you know, like cocaine, but, you know, cocaine, was, it, it was never uh, a thing. And I say it in the play, never for recreation. It, uh, uh, one, it was too expensive after a while. Two, it was making, it was putting me in a bad place, you know? So then I was introduced, uh, to the dock. It was just outside of, uh, uh, uh the, the track, you know, and, uh, across the street from the Argo theater. 
And, um, you know, uh, riders would go up there, exercise riders, you know, jocks, you know, and we would wait for the doc to give us, you know, something called Black Beauties, so whatever you needed, you know. And um, Black Beauties were cheaper, and that was that was my choice. Um, but uh, the minute I, I, I couldn't race anymore, I mean, I tried making a comeback, you know, whatever that meant, but... I couldn't get there. I was just getting bigger and bigger and, and I just didn't know what to do with my life, you know, and cutting off the drugs, um, running. I mean, I got up to 17 miles a day, 17. I, I would run as a matter of fact, uh, coming out of high school, uh, from class, instead of taking the bus, I would run home. I get home before the bus even got there. And I put on my, my, you know, Doxima cream, the Saran wrap, plastic sweatsuit, and I would run, you know, uh, 17 miles. You know, um, Mrs. Griffin, who lived across the street from me there in Hempstead, would just look out the window and she'd be shaking her head, you know, and I'd have a clicker in my hand, you know, um, for, for laps. And, um, yeah, so I, 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 and I wouldn't eat, you know, I, we didn't have an awareness of uh, of, uh, of nutrition at that time in the, in the, in the early 70s, you know. So I didn't know that if you ate you know, proper foods, you could speed up your metabolism, you know. But didn't think that. So eating was not, I mean, not on the, on the, on the menu, you know. It just wasn't. So if you had to do it all over again, would you still have done it despite all the, that you went through? I would do it again in a heartbeat if uh, if I could make the weight, you know, I would do it again. You know, I, I look at people like Trevor McCarthy, who I love, you know, he's a, he's a wonderful rider and he's five foot ten. And, you know, he's in the same category with uh, Marco Castaneda, Kelly Castaneda, the tall riders, you know, um, but they all are thin boned. You know, um, I was not. I, I was uh, born with thick bones and. um yeah, I just, I was fighting mother nature and there was just nothing I could do about it, you know, and I, I just went into a, a dark place of depression. And then when uh, my mentor was, was, was killed in a race, Robert Pineda, God rest his soul, you know, um, I went to a very bad place and, uh, and it wasn't until I was, you know, going to the rafters disco, you know, in, in Saratoga that it, it kind of saved me in a weird way because, you know, I, I I was a skinny kid with like major buck teeth. I mean, they were so huge and spread out. I mean, I could hang clothing off of them. That's how, that's how big they were, you know, and no girl wanted to dance with me. I mean, they were like weapons, like back up, you know, and uh, until this beautiful woman uh, had asked me to dance with her in Saratoga at, at the rafters. And I was like, well, you were there for me. <laughs> so we danced, you know, and, and uh, she paid me a compliment and then, the rest was history. I just kind of took off with it. What's was next that- for you, Bobby? What's next for you? I mean, you've been on Broadway, you've been on Cats, you've you've been on CSI, you've done just about everything. What's next? Well, I, I just shot uh, a TV gig uh, for this um, show called Evil. Uh, so that'll be airing I, I, fairly soon. I don't, I don't know when, I mean, but um, we, we just kind of got it under the wire before uh, the uh, um, Rider strike had, had happened. So um, that and, you know, I'm just really focused right now on, on, on small because I, I've worked on this for a number of years. And uh, even though uh, I was prompted saying, you know, the script is ready, it's, it's ready. I was like, it's not ready. Something doesn't feel viscerally right for me, you know. And I want to make sure when I'm up there that I'm, I feel confident about the writing. And, uh, and I do now. Yeah, so small is my focus, you know. You nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. Thank you. Thank you. And I just want to say one thing about Anthony Melfi and and GMP Farms, because when he had approached me about doing small up there uh, for uh, one performance, uh, he said it's for a fundraiser. And I said, what's the fundraiser? And he said, PDJF. And I was like, I'm in. And he said, well, how much do you want for it? I said, I don't want anything for it. This is, this is my way of giving back because I, jockeys to me, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again, are the true matadors of the sport of kings. And they put their lives on the line every day. And uh, 
they should be given the help uh, and, and money's necessary necessary for whenever they're injured. You know, I have this here, and I meant to show this. I uh, dropped the ball, but you know, um, Stevie Cawthon, you know, he has given me a saddle. Oh wow! And this is the saddle that that I use for the show. And I told him, I, I said, Stevie, I, 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 he said, I've heard so many great things about the show, Bobby. He said, you know, I said, Stevie, I never want to race. You know, I mean, you're going to give me any. He said, I'm not only giving, I want you to keep it. He said, it's from one winner to another. I was like, oh, my God. So I have magic on that stage. I have mm -hmm. Steve Saddle. I have uh, Jose Rodriguez's stirrups, who used to ride for Lucian Lauren. You know, I have Robert Pineda's whip. You know, the one that he made me is right up there on the wall. I would not use that for the show because I'm afraid something would happen, you know, to it. So that's there to stay. Wow. Um, and I and, and Willie Belmonte's uh, ex-wife, Lori Bourne from from Charlestown, sent me two of his bridles that I'll be using on the, on the set as well. So I have. I have magic and I have love on that stage. The play is but, called Small. It's a biography of the racetrack and career well beyond the racetrack of Bobby Montano. Once again, it starts in playing in Manhattan on August 12th, runs through September 2nd at the 59th, uh, 59 East 59th Street Theater. Bobby Montano, thanks so much for joining us. Congratulations. I've heard nothing but good things about this and I can't wait to see it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that, Zoe and Bill. Thank you so much. Thank you. As the Green Group Guest of the Week, Robert Montano will receive a free one-hour tax consultation from the Green Group. For more information on how the Green Group can save you money in your wallet on your taxes, confound the IRS, go to www.greenco.com. Are you paying too much in taxes? The Green Group can help. There's a reason the most successful owners, breeders, and horsemen select the Green Group as their tax advisors. They save you money and share successful strategies. Over the past 40 years, the Green Group founder, Len Green, has owned and bred some of the best racehorses in the history of the sport, like Eclipse Award-winning champions Jaywalk and Wonderwheel. His DJ stable competes at the highest level and has received the game's most prestigious honors. Len Green's in-depth, hands-on industry knowledge, combined with cutting-edge tax-saving strategies, has produced positive results for his clientele and has made the Green Group the top-rated accounting and tax firm in the thoroughbred business. For a confidential and complimentary consultation, contact us at 732-634-5100 or visit our website at www.greenco.com. The Green Group, proven strategies to save you taxes. With some of the fullest fields in the country and quality racing year-round, there's never been a better time to reap the rewards of breeding and racing in Kentucky. Purse money in Kentucky is at an all-time high, as is average purse per race, outpacing California, Florida, and New York. Kentucky Brents. Breed them. Raise them. Race them. We all win. The TDN Writers' Room is brought to you by Kentucky Breads. Breeders' Cup classic contenders are bred, where else? In Kentucky. It's all about White Abario. Kentucky Bred White Abario scored a convincing six and a quarter length in Saturday's $1 million grade one Whitney Stakes, a win in your in for the $6 million Breeders' Cup Classic. We will see him there next in three months' time. White Abario was recording his second grade one victory. And on the same day, Adair Manor earned her automatic berth into the 2023 Breeders' Cup Distaff with a win and you're in in the grade one, Clement Hirsch. It was her fourth straight win and her first grade one stakes, well-deserved. Find your Kentucky bread at the upcoming Keeneland September sale, September the 11th through the 23rd. So last week you would figure the most watched race in the country on YouTube would have been the Whitney probably. But I don't know for a fact, but I bet you that a race at Belterra Park, where it would Belterra Park on a Wednesday, just out, outside Cincinnati, was the most viewed one. Uh, Chantel Sutherland, she's the troublemaker. She started all this. She went to Twitter and posted the replay of a race at Belterra, and it has been re uh, 
viewed as of this morning 483,000 times. And a jockey by the name of Gregory Romero, I don't think any of us ever heard of him, um, was in deep in stretch. He was riding a horse uh, by the name of Scooter and the Bagman. Had the race won, uh, two jumps from the wire, three jumps from the wire. He stopped riding the horse, looked over at the horse outside him, which was a six to five favorite, almost waved and said, hey, go on by me. And, uh, you know, what the heck was going on here? And first of all, I, I think people jumped to, oh, the race was fixed. The race wasn't fixed. That, that, that's nonsense. I think he had an inexperienced jockey. He's only won three races. Maybe he was showboating a little bit. He thought he had the race won. I don't really know. But the uh, Belterra stewards uh, gave him a 15-day suspension, said he uh, misjudged the finish line. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, Zoe, let's start with you, your jockey experience. What the heck was this guy thinking? Well, I mean, I added at least five more views to the YouTube page this morning because I watched it over and over again. He rode a good race until three jumps before the wire. He was going to win. Absolutely, he misjudged the finish line. And I think he looked over thinking he was galloping out. I see Randy's face right now. He's looking at me. Um, I think he misjudged the finish line. He's won three races this year and 32 for 297 lifetime. He's been riding sporadically since 2016. If you bet on that horse, you had to be spitting bricks because he was nine to one. He was a price and the favorite just went on by him. But that's that's my take on it. I mean, this is a guy who doesn't get many opportunities to win many races. I'm pretty sure he wanted to get his share of that $8,000 pot to the winner. That's my take. He misjudged the finish line. Randy, I believe, has a holy... Different take, because if you can't see his face, he's just grinning from <laughs> ear to ear, and he's just about to come at me with something. There's only one finish line at Belterra. It's not like, he pulled, it's not like he pulled up at the 16th pole thinking that was the finish. <laughs> he kept looking to his right, right? He knew the horse was coming. He just thought he had the race won. He wrapped up and got cocky, and out of, out, you can call it showboating, I guess, but he thought it's like a, it's like an NFL player. You know, and we've seen that we've 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 seen it many times if you follow football. You know, celebrating before you get to the end zone, and then a guy comes up behind and strips the ball away, and it ends up you know with egg all over his face. I think that's what happened here. Totally, I don't think he misjudged the finish line. I think he misjudged where his horse was in relation to the finish line and how fast the other horse was going to be closing uh, there at the end. As far as anything sinister, it, look if there was anything sinister going on there. He wouldn't have cut it that close. No, I mean, yeah. it was right. It was right on the wire. All right. So the consensus is the guy's a bonehead. How about that? All right. I, I have a bigger problem, a uh -oh. bigger problem with the lack of transparency of the stewards. Yeah. Okay. Who, who wouldn't talk about it? Nobody you know? would talk I mean, about it. This, this should be a, it should be written in the rules, just like it is in the NFL, that coaches and players are mandated to have to talk to the media on certain days of the week. Stewards should be required by commission rule to have to speak to the media after disqualifications, after stewards' rulings, to explain themselves. It's basic transparency 101 to just say, nah, we got no comment. No, no, that doesn't fly. Randy, I was off last week, but if you get, read my column about Forte and the non-DQ in the Jim Dandy, I made exactly that point. Whether you agree with the DQ or not, the stewards, there was over $3 million bet on that race, and that yeah. doesn't even include the horizontal wagers. And, and the public is owed an explanation. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Hey, um, as uh, usually the case, we uh, record this before the entries are out for the big stakes on the weekend. So uh, we're a little bit uh, handcuffed so far as what we talk about. The four-star Dave will be the feature race at Saratoga grade one. But the uh, I think the load of attention will be turning to a place that doesn't get a lot of attention. That's Colonial Downs, where the races that uh, began at Arlington Park, uh, the, led by the Arlington Million, the Beverly D, and the Secretariat will be run uh, this weekend, this Saturday at Colonial Downs. Last year, they ran them at Churchill, uh, over that turf course that was dirt painted green, if you ask me. But uh, a couple takes on this. I, I give Churchill credit for doing this, and people love to bash Churchill, but they didn't have to keep these races going. And I don't see, you know, if there's any, I don't, I don't see why there'd be any money in it for them. 
um, or any any particular profit. I think they were trying to do the right thing. Now I'm gonna talk out of both sides of my mouth. This way stinks, a- absolutely stinks. Uh, Santine is the uh, big name in the race because he won the Arlington Million last year. What has he done since then? He's run six straight times and hasn't even hit the board. And again, this is a, a subject that we talk about a lot. Uh, and we come, come back to this. You know, it's grade one, one million dollar race. They can't get anybody to run in it. There are too many big races out there. There are too many stakes races. The sport has not done nearly enough to adjust to this. Um, just as I said about the suburban, I believe I talked about that on, uh, on the podcast, uh, a race at Belmont that really just shouldn't exist anymore. You know what? I, I think Churchill should say we tried. This just isn't working. And I think this should be the last year they run these races. All right, I gotta be I gotta be very delicate here. Uh, Churchill Downs Incorporated deserves a lot of credit for a lot of things that they've done, right? Uh, the way they've remodeled Churchill Downs and continue to do that, the way they've shepherded the Kentucky Derby, which has gotten more popular and more popular, the way they've been part of spearheading the uh, uh, the alternative gaming industry in Kentucky and everything it's done for Kentucky purse money. Right. CDI is one of the companies that deserves a lot of credit for that. On the other hand, as far as Arlington Park goes, Churchill Downs tore down what was arguably the nicest racing facility in America for corporate, apparently for corporate profit reasons. Right. That's that's the only explanation that we have. Uh, I can't give Churchill Downs credit for taking the million and the Beverly D and the and the Secretariat and moving them to Colonial Downs, which they think is going to financially benefit Colonial Downs to have those races. Uh, just like uh, I know the National uh, Museum of Racing Hall of Fame put out a press release uh, thanking Churchill Downs for their generous donation of the Against All Odds statue to the museum. No, no, I don't give me credit for tearing down Arlington Park and then say, oh, here, we'll give you the statue. We'll, we'll, we'll take a tax write-off, by the way, for this as well. Uh, I mean, CDI has done a lot of a really, really good things in the industry and shareholders celebrate them and rightfully so. Uh, but as far as the Arlington Park situation is concerned, I struggle uh, to give CDI credit for anything associated with that. I'm glad you said it. That means I don't have to. I'll I'll just stay in my little corner over here, but because I'm a massive Arlington Park fan. The statue is great at the museum. I just wish it was still at Arlington. Let let's face it. And as far as the Arlington million, where are the Euros? Did Aiden O'Brien think the yeah. million gone by the way of Arlington Park? This is a guy who would come to the festival with a boatload of horses, Beverly D, Secretariat, Arlington Million, the whole week, he'd bring 15 horses. Where are these guys? I know Rebel's Romance for Godolphin was supposed to go, but he's not going now. Where are they? Ha- have they forgotten? Do they think that they demolished the Arlington Million as well? That's my biggest question. Yeah, that is strange. You know, no Appleby in particular, yeah. but... For whatever reason, once this race left Arlington um, and and went to Churchill first, and because last year's edition wasn't very good either, it's the like someone just lost all its mojo. Um, and 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 then here we are. And yeah. uh, look, it's a Grade One, one million dollars, but um, it, it it's it's yeah. not representative of of what it's we called, think. It's called karma. Karma. <laughs> there you go. Okay. All right. Uh, speaking of karma, what's going on with XBTV, Zoe? Well, we got plenty of workouts because the TDN Writers Room is brought to you by XBTV. The workout of the week is Mage. Now he arrived at Saratoga just last week. This is his first work at Saratoga and he breezed five furlongs in 101.03 in preparation for the grade one Travers. Naira Clockers caught the Gustavo Delgado trainee through split of 12 and 2. 24 and 2 and 36 and 2 over the main track, galloping out five furlongs very nicely. You can go back and take a look at some of his other works as well. This is on par with how he works. He's not the greatest workhouse in the morning. Dalgado was quoted as saying it was very good because it was very easy. It was his first breeze since finishing second in the TVG Haskell on July 22nd. We'll be right back after this message. all the thrills 
fraction of the bills. Experience the power of the partnership. Change your life, make new friends, and compete at the highest level of thoroughbred racing. West Point Thoroughbreds, the gold standard in racing partnerships. Visit westpointtb.com. The TD and Riders Room also brought to you by West Point Thoroughbreds. Joining a West Point partnership can vault you into the world of instant camaraderie, and you can also have winners. West Point went coast to coast last week on Thursday at Colonial Downs. Again, Ohana Honor broke his maiden by four and a quarter lengths as a three to five favorite for trainer Shug McGahey. Then on Saturday, got thunder wins at 11 to one as the four to five favorite all the way out at Del Mar. For trainer John Sadler, 11 and a quarter lengths for Got Thunder. And congratulations to West Point's president and CEO, Terry Finley, who has been elected now to the Jockey Club Board of Stewards. That's a wrap on this week's show. I want to thank my cohorts, Randy Moss and Zoe Cabin, our Green Group guests of the week, Bobby Montano, uh, the man behind that terrific play, Small. You got to go see that. And our editors, Anthony LaRock, excuse me, not Anthony's not an editor, he's a co-producer. So our co-producers, Katie Petruniak, Nancy LaRocca, and our editors, Leah LaRocca and Nathan Wilkinson. Thanks so much for watching and listening. We'll catch up with you again next week.